This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thanks, everybody, for coming and for um, staying until the end. Uh, it's my pleasure to host the, to be the moderator in this, this last panel here. And as a result, um, we've decided that it should be a very open conversational panel because we were supposed to talk about the future, and frankly, who knows? Um, so um, so um, what we've heard in the earlier panels is that NAFTA basically doesn't have any defenders except for businesses, big business, uh, that salaries haven't really improved under NAFTA, um, and um, so there's nobody to really speak up for NAFTA, and NAFTA's such a dirty word that maybe we should think of a new name for NAFTA. So my question to the three of you is, why bother? <laughs> uh, do you want to... <laughs> um, I, I, uh, first, I, I, NAFTA is fairly popular in Mexico. Uh, um, Using current uh, wording, um, if one looks at the elites and the rest of the people, uh, Mexicans are very split on that. For Mexicans, joining NAFTA was, as I think Gerardo Esquivel mentioned this morning, uh, it was a vision thing. It was going, becoming part of something important and having some source of certainty that, that Mexicans had never enjoyed and that uh, this left them with something to stick to that was separate from the Mexican government, which, change, which changes rules and changes uh, policies as they see fit. And if, if the politician, the president, uh, woke up on the wrong side of, of the bed one morning, he or she changes the rules. And for them, for that, those Mexicans, which are 117 million, if we have 117.001, um, those for them, that's the most important thing, and that's what NAFTA brought. And I think that that explains two things. One is twitching the the metaphor that Antonio Rotismena used in the morning. Um, I think that from going from a past of prejudice against the U.S. to a, pri of a future or a present of pride of being part of that vision. Uh, I think that that's, that's what made Mexicans very close to it. And in a way, that explains why, even though there's a big wave of anti-Americanism, it's not, it's, it's not that deep. Um, the average Mexican is more worried about where the jobs are going to come from, uh, where the incomes are going to come from, the remittances. Uh, those things that are, whether truly or not, associated to NAFTA, or at least associated to the closeness to the U.S., and for the average Mexican, that's what's important. And in, in that sense, the strike that um, the blow that, that, uh, that, that Trump has struck is far deeper, far more complicated than, than one could assume at first sight. It, it, it hits at the, at the core of, of, the, um, of the sense of, of belonging, of the sense of future that Mexicans held to. Because in... in uh, in strident contrast with the Canadians, Mexicans don't have a sense of where they want to go in the future. There is no such vision. 
Uh, in every meeting I go to where there are Canadians, Americans, and Mexicans, the Canadians always have an agenda, always know what they want out of it. Mexicans don't. And have, being close to the U.S. and having in, in NAFTA was a sort of, of certainty. And that's, I think, what is at stake today. Um, why bother? Why bother? Uh, you know, at a time, Elizabeth, when the international liberal order is under attack, not just uh, from Trump, but all over Europe, um, we are seeing the, you know, the, the fundamentals of eth- economic orthodoxy that many of us in this room grew up with. Certainly, Luis and I have been part of it for now, I don't know, 35 years. And that was the idea, incidentally, at the heart and soul of GOP orthodoxy, that open borders, open trade, um, rule of law, all these things now are under attack. And they're under attack by the supreme hijacker, of, uh, whose name I will not mention, who took that party over, and now that has become the narrative. So when you say, why bother? The defense of the NAFTA, even if, uh, and I'm the first to say that it needs to be updated, it needs to be improved, maybe it needs to be relabeled, but the defense of the NAFTA is at the heart a defense of the rule of law. And all these, I I know we call it populism, we call it nationalism, but let's all remember that that kind of thinking, we've seen it all before and it all comes to a very bad end. So while the forces arguing for rule of law, why trade agreements matter, why regional trade agreements matter, why the WTO, that if he scraps the NAFTA, uh, at least Mexico says we can fall back on the WTO, Uh, Canada can say we can fall back on the original free trade agreement. But why do we want to fall back on these things? Because these agreements, painfully negotiated, provide a a framework. And Luis has said it very, very, I think, uh, movingly, uh, that for Mexico, which I think has been the biggest beneficiary of the NAFTA, it provided, it took a country that had a long and terrible in many respects, a terrible history with the United States. It sort of put a lot of that aside. It looked north. It became a member of a North American community that we thought was going to grow. It was never going to become a European Union. We were always going to retain three sets of sovereignties. Uh, And now, all of a sudden, this seems to be uh, being turned upside down. May I just say, in less than 30 seconds, Uh, I believe the NAFTA will survive. I do not believe it'll be trashed or burned in a bonfire. I think it'll survive because the dynamics of North America, as I've said time and time again in past speeches, the economic integration of North America is irreversible. And the reason it's irreversible is no single individual sitting in an office in, uh, in Washington is going to ever be able to overpower Uh, a business community and others that are engaged in tens of hundreds of millions of daily transactions and an economic agenda that is being driven by by the new economy. Uh, No politician is really going to be able to kill that. He may put a dent in it. He may do some damage to it. But if collectively we get together, we can improve that NAFTA. And at the end, and this is really the big selling point. If we can convince some of the people around uh, Trump, and incidentally, I just read on my thing that Wilbur Ross has just been confirmed. If we, can, if we can convince some of the members 
of the habit around him, who after all are people who were possessed once upon a time with orthodoxy, that, that, that the greatest future, uh, post-NAFTA future for North America, is a Canada, United States, and Mexico that work closely together as three sovereign countries and that take all the huge advantages that we have, we can achieve literally global preeminence in the North American continent for the next 50 to 75 years. And that is our answer to China. It's our answer to Asia. And somebody has to put that into the president's mind and say, Mexico is not the enemy, nor really is China. But look at the size of the deficits. The Chinese deficit is much, much larger than the Mexican deficit. That's ultimately where we should be going. Well, good afternoon, everybody. When I started this, Michael Camunas. I'm first of all, let me just say, since it's my first time up at the panel, that it's wonderful to be with you. And I want to commend the uh, conference organizers on on really a terrific day. I've sat through a lot of these uh, <laughs> conferences, and so often you just hear the same old thing. And I thought they did a great job of having each panel really bring a different perspective with different data. And hopefully, we don't disappoint with this last panel. Um, why bother? Because I think my colleagues have said it very well, um, but fundamentally as an American, one of my greatest frustrations uh, with this debate is the profound level of ignorance that exists in this country about the extent to which our truly our future competitiveness, our, our, our future is bound up inextricably with Mexico and Canada. Uh, as, as Tom just said very eloquently, you know, we hear a lot of talk about the North America regional uh, platform, North America as an economic block, which it effectively is, a co-production block. It is truly the case that we are better off, our children will be better off, we will be safer, we will be more productive, we will, ha- we will enjoy a better, quality, a better quality of life, a better standard of living uh, in all three countries together than we will apart. And that really our our best uh, opportunity to uh, promote our values in the world uh, is to do it together. Uh, And this was, I think, the genius of the TPP. uh, And it's very unfortunate that uh, that that agreement has gone under. And I'm still with those who think that there will come a day it will live again. Uh, And I'm also with those earlier who said we have to take the long view and realize that this is a blip in the relationship. It's a really unfortunate blip because, as Luis eloquently and I think very personally says, uh, it tears at the fabric. It tears at the bonds that have been so hard to build. And given the history that we have, uh, a not terribly pleasant history that we have as Americans vis-a-vis Mexico, uh, it reinforces a lot of uh, ugly memories that the Mexicans correctly have. That said, um, I'm with Tom in believing that there is so much at stake and there's so much invested and there's so much inertia that the odds of this simply just going away because of blustery rhetoric out of the White House uh, are quite low. That said, I think we have to acknowledge that we're facing a very complicated problem because as you listen to the discussion today, we're essentially dealing with the convergence of several forces. We've got... um, Trade, the NAFTA agreement itself. We've got security and the issue of the wall and all the baggage that's associated with that and the underlying merits uh, that are associated with that. Migration, 
uh, and the uh, the deportation uh, that's that's happening and the um, the hanging issue of immigration reform generally that still has to be dealt with. And then, of course, tax policy, which we just heard from the last uh, uh, panel. These are in any one of these is a difficult issue to tackle. But you put them all on the table at the same time in the context of one relationship. And it, and it gets very, very difficult. But why does it matter? It matters fundamentally because, uh, you know, this our, our future depends on this. And I think that the the profound ignorance that exists is is the big tragedy. And if anything, I think Alan Burson was saying it in his counterfactual earlier, if any positive can come out of this, I hope it's that the provocative actions of the Trump administration will force us to come to terms with once and for all the value of this relationship and hopefully come out on the right end of that. But but it's a, it's a relationship worth fighting for and one that many of us are committed to. Could I? Um, mm-hmm. um, one of the points that was raised earlier was that, in a sense, this is a monologue. It's a dialogue that we're all here mostly in some sort of agreement. Um, could I ask you all, in a very short way, to repeat what you said for maquiladora workers and for a union hall somewhere in the Midwest, and explain to them they haven't seen their salaries increase, um, their standard of living in the U.S. has fallen, in Mexico have increased much uh, less quickly than they had hoped. Try to make that case for a union hall and for maquiladora workers. Well, let me start with the union hall because I've, I've had to do it you, when I was Assistant Secretary of Commerce and we were selling the uh, Korea Free Trade Agreement and the Panama Free Trade Agreement and the Colombia Free Trade Agreement. And I actually was very involved, as many of you know, in the U.S.-Mexico relationship and launching the high-level economic dialogue. And I went out on heartland trips to visit the heartland of America to talk about the Mexico relationship and dealt with a lot of these uh, dissenting views. And what I always said to them was... Um, First of all, I tried to stress that in many cases, for many of them, your jobs actually are far more dependent on trade with Mexico than you realize. Uh, when you look at this statistic that 40% of, 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 the, of, American, of Mexican exports to the U.S. or conversely imports from Mexico have U.S. content, what does that mean? It means that we're pulling on supply chains, we're pulling on inputs and components that are made in the United States typically by workers in SMEs and by workers who are, who are feeding into that supply chain. We take so much pride, for example, these beautiful Chrysler Super Bowl commercials that talk about uh, a Detroit is back, made in Detroit, imported from Detroit, I think is the logo. And I would argue, I think, and I'm factually correct, that Detroit is back in part because it's standing on the shoulders of Mexico, because our uh, relationship with Mexico is such that uh, those supply chains have enabled us to be very, very competitive globally. And the synergies that exist between the rise of the Mexican automotive industry and the American automotive industry are, are self-evident. So number one, your job depends on it. There's five million of you that directly depend on trade with Mexico. And second of all, as to the, um, the flat wages and, and the failure for us to make adjustments, um, that is a fair criticism. But my question would be, is, the, is, the, is Mexico the op, should Mexico be the object of your criticism? Or should you be looking your Congress members in the eye and ask them, why have you failed as a matter of public policy to anticipate 
the very harsh impacts that technology is going to have on the American economy? Why have you failed to pursue a public policy that's related to trade adjustment assistance that makes meaningful investments in, in worker preparedness and retraining and, and preparing the American, the American workers, middle class, blue collar workers for the economy of the 21st century. And I would say, why have you failed as a matter of public policy to invest meaningfully in STEM education and in other kinds of education reform matters that really result in a competitive global workforce? Instead, We've allowed generation after generation people to work in a system that uh, essentially, you know, not to sound too lefty here, but exploits them for their labor and doesn't really invest in them as human capital and prepare them to compete in a global economy. And the same thing can be said about Mexico, by the way. Uh, uh, You know, Elizabeth, I, I think Michael gave a very, uh, a very comprehensive answer. And if I were in a union hall, uh, I, I would be. Uh, no, I'd be paying very close attention. I, I would just add one additional point, and it's really more of a macro point. And and it's it's a confession, it's a confession of a well of a self-confessed promoter of capitalism for the last forty years of my life, and and being a serial free trader. Uh, so having put my credentials on the table, I am profoundly, and I'm not just saying this as, you know, a, a later in life reflection on, on, on the sins of the past, because some people who are in this room who know me, it's, it's been a view of mine for a long, long time. I've always been of the view that the fundamental purpose of capital is to achieve better and and more positive social outcomes for society. That is what the fundamental root of capitalism is all about. And I have to say that in various countries uh, around the world, in part driven by the very orthodoxy that I was uh, defending beforehand, um, and the conclusion that I've come to is there is there's a moral question uh, of those who are the holders of capital, and in some instances, particularly in an economy like Mexico, which tends to be more concentrated, um, I think that those are matters of uh, conscience that have to be taken into account. Uh, a Mexican hero who just died a couple of weeks ago um, uh, was the founder of Bimbo. And there in Servici, you saw an individual who a long time ago you know, making bread, now the biggest bread-making company in the world, but who preached the doctrine that, yes, we must, we must, we must do well in our business, but we must treat everyone with respect. We, the, the concept of, of corporate social responsibility, he practiced it. I, I think a lot of business leaders have to pay much closer attention to that. And the final thing I would say, because I don't want to let the politicians off the hook, uh, Michael is absolutely right, because when I look back over 20 and 30 years of failures, why is it that we have all this animosity? We have this animosity because along with trade agreements, along with technological change, which has been a much more profound uh, exacerbator of unemployment, uh, we have not had public policy. Uh, as in, as in uh, labor and trade adjustment policies in place. Who in the devil is going to retrain people who have their jobs taken away if it's not going to be done? Uh, companies have a role to do that, but so, do, so does public policy and so do government. So I think, as I, as I said to somebody just a couple of days ago, I said I strongly 
support the idea of open economies. Uh, but I do really believe that the, the system of which we are players has failed miserably at providing the cushion. And we're not going to be able to do it for everybody because technological change is moving at a pace that is absolutely stunning. But I, I would suggest to you that most of the governments that I know, even though even the most progressive governments, are really asleep at the switch on this issue. Well, let me just add to the eloquent uh, comments of, of both Michael and Tom. Uh, in Mexico, I don't believe the issue of workers having less lesser benefits than they should or could have has to do with laws, because ultimately the Mexico has lots of laws that nobody cares about. Uh, I think that the issue is more that people are, uh, those who work in the export-led uh, industry, are mindful that there are many more that could replace them very easily. Second, um, maybe many of them um, uh, don't find the alternative very attractive, uh, and they are much better off than the average Mexican worker in, in the rest of the of industry. That may be no consolation, but the, the important thing, I think, at the end of the day, is that they don't trust the government. And what they, they, they'd rather not rebel than, than rock the boat or, or make their jobs disappear if they did. At the end of the day, I, I totally agree with Tom. The issue is public policy, and Mexico has been lousy at it. Uh, NAFTA and, and the opportunity of migrating to the U.S. both allowed the Mexican government not to reform itself, not to uh, improve the quality of government, not to improve the quality of education. Uh, it created, it, it, it was, it, it found a way through both NAFTA and the opportunities for jobs in the U.S. not to do its job, simply to abandon its role of governing and to maintain its regime of privileges. I could give you endless examples of this, but the point at the end of the day is that without government, without institutions, without proper rules, things simply don't work. The only part of Mexico's economy that does work well is that that is tied to the U.S. and, and through NAFTA. And the reason for that is very simple, because there are rules and there's a rule of law, and people have to stick to it because it can be enforced. Mexico is going to have elections in 2018. And right now the leading candidate um, is somebody who uh, at least... He's been lukewarm on NAFTA. He suddenly seems to be a little bit more in favor of NAFTA than he was before, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Um, and you had talked uh, when we uh, uh, communicated before about the, Me the Mexican government's uh, desire for a quick fix to get to the 2018 uh, elections. Can you just describe for everybody a little bit what what is... You know, what is Mexico facing in 2018? What are the choices for Mexicans? And why does it appear at this point that they are looking towards uh, um, an, a populist uh, of the left, of the right? It's very hard to tell. He's sui generis, Andres Manuel López Obrador. Can you, can you talk a little bit about um, what comes now uh, in the next two years? Well, the, the, I, I guess that there are three answers. Uh, one is that um, he's behaving presidential in the way the Americans talk about uh, these issues. Uh, and one of that is accepting that, that Mexicans are uh, fond of NAFTA for because of all the things I've been saying. So in that sense, he's simply 
participating and, and, and running the wave of, of, of that popularity or relative popularity. Um, the second is that what what there are no other candidates uh, uh, fully in place. Uh, the PAN doesn't have a credible candidate and they are too split. PRI, I believe, will at the end of the day the, be the decisive uh, factor because uh, in, in with multiple uh, can, multiple parties and many more par- uh, candidates because of the fact that uh, that there are independents for the first time running as, as uh, for the presidency. Uh, the the threshold of victory is likely to be below 30%. And that makes it possible for many more people to win than one would uh, assume at the beginning. So that creates an opportunity for him. I don't think he's left or he's right. I think that he's basically a nationalist. And I think that that's, that's really what, what uh, the, the defines him. Um, uh, I don't think he's an ogre and I don't think he's a monster, but I think that he's simply looking uh, backwards and, and inwards, and, and that is exactly the opposite of what NAFTA and this vision since liberalization in the 1980s and 90s uh, changed in Mexico, which is that it forced Mexicans to begin to look outwards and, and towards the future. Uh, and the danger, I believe, is that two nationalists in, in each country looking at each other, trying to separate their countries, would do a lot of more damage than one could, th- could fathom otherwise. Can I just make a comment on 2018? Because it also plays into the United States domestic politics also. Let's not forget that we have uh, midterm elections coming up. I was in the Obama White House when we lost the Congress uh, in uh, 2000 and what was it, uh, uh, 10, right after we had this overwhelming victory and everyone was just dumbstruck. And so we should remember that change can come very quickly. And there's enormous political pressure, I think, to get a deal done quickly. Uh, rather than letting this drag on, because first of all, you know, and I know I'm going a little bit off topic here, but it, it's so important for people to understand there is no Washington consensus on trade. There is no uh, clear path forward. Uh, we don't know which Trump, uh, it, which part of the Trump administration is going to prevail. Is it the White House or the cabinet? I agree with the views of the cabinet that they're more reasonable, but uh, the people inside the White House clearly are not and have a different view. So we don't know what's going to happen there. There's no consensus in Congress around these issues on the left or the right. This isn't just a Republican issue. And so even the thought that if you had under Beatrice's uh, typology of minor, moderate, major withdrawal, you know, what happens with NAFTA, even minor changes that might require any congressional approval, it's not clear the votes are there today for that. And the president is not exactly building coalitions uh, in Washington. And so I think 2018 is going to be, you know, there's going to be huge pressure to get something done if it can be done um, by then. And I think lastly, I'd just like to say that I think it's incumbent on all of us to be very, very cognizant as we talk about this relationship about the impact that the United States is having on Mexico domestically. I worry deeply about the, the, us inadvertently pushing Mexico to a place where we don't want to see it go. And I'm not just referring to AMLO. I think, you know, we have the first independent governor elected in Nuevo León with El Bronco. Who's to say, I mean, our, our lunchtime speaker, I understand, has already declared his candidacy. But who's to say that an independent uh, uh, character of maybe some attributes far less desirable than AMLO might surface. I mean, imagine a Chavista in Mexico with the destabilization that we could help 
basically create because of our own policies. And this is why, and I'll conclude with this, with all due respect to Ambassador David O, who I have immense respect for, um, his earlier comment about the wall and that, oh, you know, don't worry about the wall, this is our issue. My view, and I know I may be in the minority here, is that the wall is morally repugnant and it is symbolic of uh, everything that's wrong about the way we're thinking about this relationship. And I think it's incumbent on this group to uh, do all that it can to speak out against the wall. And it is a Mexican issue because the notion that a Western power would build or propose to build a Berlin-style wall between uh, itself and its neighbors, the country that sent Ronald Reagan uh, to the Brandenburg Gate to say, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall, that it itself would now be even talking about a similar wall, and Trump keeps doubling down on his description of it, whatever Secretary Kelly may say, uh, I think is a real problem. And it's that kind of symbolism, that kind of language that tears at the fabric and that undermines uh, and, and that facilitates and hastens, I think, the arrival not just of an AMLO, but of something far worse in Mexico. So I think it's something we have to take very seriously and resist and fight against as strongly and passionately as we can, Republican or Democrat, because it betrays our values and it risks undermining our friend in Mexico. Um, do we have questions? On the subject of the implications of new political realities, the Trump administration is totally different animal. The cabinet members are mostly billionaires, very successful, very big egos, right? And Trump is not even getting his salary. He misses his Saturday dinner in New York he abhors living in the White House because of his palace in the Trump Plaza in New York, right? And I think this administration will not be responsive to threats from Mexico. For example, the pulling out the security. I think the Canadian strategy is a lot better. They speak with one voice. They agreed to have no negative word about Trump, okay? They are being creative and innovative, whereas in Mexico, it's more tactical and laid back. Even Luis said that there is no vision in his meetings that he attended. Uh, my question is, do you think that Mexico would consider or would be open to at least following the Canadian lead so that everybody will be a winner. If it doesn't happen, a lot of countries will be losers. And my speculation is that Mexico will suffer the most with a population that doubled during the last decade, with the wages not increasing, with a lot of areas in Mexico not even having water. I think I suggest that you should have an open mind. Maybe Luis would like to answer. <laughs> We have a very peculiar situation um, to deal with this. One is that the administration is not exactly a visionary, a creative, or, um, or popular. Second, elections are coming about a, in, in a few months. Uh, we'll have a formal candidates by the end of the year. Uh, the timing of the domestic agenda in Washington is quite uh, 
complicated and may not give uh, allow time for for NAFTA to to be reconsidered. Um, so we'll enter into into election period. Um, elections will be in first Sunday of June of next year. Um, uh, we'll enter into that without having fixed the main source of uncertainty that today we have. Uh, investment is no longer growing, neither private nor public, and in the case of private, neither international nor domestic. So um, we have the, the perfect storm uh, brewing and could create the kind of scenario that, that Michael is creating. I don't think that Michael was speculating about. I don't believe that um, I don't believe that, that we have the, the capability today, the political capability today, to, to actually face on to the kind of uh, storm that we have potentially before us. And that's what we have to live with, period. If I, if I can just say to my friend Luis, um, th- th- uh, thank you very much for, for your suggestion. But but I but I would say this I, I've I've watched the evolution of the uh, of the Trump position on Mexico with uh, frankly staggering disbelief. Um, Canada has not suffered the insults or the provocations uh, in any way uh, that Mexico has, uh, and and to me this issue of national pride, which is so fundamental. Um, and in, I know we're talking about North America here, but, but there are other countries around the world, uh, from uh, Germany to, um, uh, you know, to France and, and beyond, who have also felt the impact of both insults and disrespect. We've been living in a world where diplomacy, at least in the Western world, was, uh, and for that matter, in, even in the world that China is the epicenter of, where diplomacy was conducted with an element of respect. We now have people who are disruptors, who are saying whatever comes to their mind. The implications of this are huge. And if we Canadians, uh, during the last uh, year, have been subjected to even one scintilla of the kind of provocations and insults that the Mexicans have, you, you would have seen some very powerful reactions there as well. As it stands, we are very fortunate that uh, we do not have uh, our, our trade is balanced. Uh, our security relationship is a very close one. We are close defense allies. There are many uh, advantages that the relationship has. But at the end of the day, all countries that are sovereign uh, like to live in dignity. They do not want to be disrespected. They don't want to be insulted. And uh, and unfortunately, we're living in an environment where this is not the case. I'll just make one last point, and that is, in dealing with the U.S. administration, while I outlined in broad terms what I think so far has been a reasonably successful strategy on the part of Canada, is because we realize how unusual these times are. But at the same time, Canadian public opinion is strongly opposed to any kowtowing or bowing down or uh, knuckling under to Trump policies. And, uh, and, and so, so far, we've identified the areas where we can work together. And they happen to be very important areas to Mr. Trump, to this administration, and to us as well. We've chosen not to talk about the things we disagree on. If every time Mr. Trump had said NATO is useless 
and Canada said, terribly wrong, Mr. Trump. I mean, do you have no idea of how important this alliance is? Or uh, when he would, you know, well, we, we, we could go on and on about the things that he has said that we disagree with. When he said that the environment, global warming is a hoax, uh, again, profoundly different. If every time he said those things, and I know the temptation was very strong. I, as a private citizen, certainly made my views known. But a government and a government leader should not be doing so. And my view is, how, what, however strongly you may feel about Mr. Trump, one must respect the office of the president. I'll, I'll just finish up with a 20-second anecdote. I was very young, and I was, living, uh, I was working for Prime Minister Trudeau's father. I don't know. I was about 23 years of age. Uh, Richard Nixon came to office in the United States. And, you know, Nixon and Trudeau in those days was not quite uh, the size of gap that we have today, but we're talking about the sun and the moon. And I made the terrible mistake of sending an old girlfriend who lived in Seattle a little note saying, Tricky Dicky has visited Canada on an official visit. And I always knew her to be a strong Democrat. And I got back this note and said, how dare you insult my president? And so way back, when I was 23 years of age, I learned that one must respect the office, even if you have deep reservations about the individual. I loved what Tom said about uh, maybe Trump can be persuaded that this uh, trilateral relationship of North America is really much more powerful than anything they can do in Asia or Europe as a matter of trade. Maybe you can get him to say, I didn't mean to say America first, I meant to say the Americas first. Um, but my, my question is, we haven't heard about this today, and that is, what is it that Mexico and Canada can or should be doing together to influence the policy in, Me- in Washington? How, to what extent can there be a bilateral effort uh, about the outcome? Uh, Rafael, I'm glad you asked that question, because for a long time, even when the Obama administration was in office, and in fact, going right back to George W. Bush, I always tried to convince my Mexican colleagues that Canada and Mexico should uh, play, not play is the wrong word, but we should follow what I call the great pincer strategy. And and I'm very serious about this. And the argument that I always made was the following. And it, it, it deeply influenced by an old mentor of mine, the greatest single American I know, George Schultz. George Schultz used to say, first you've got to get the neighborhood in shape. And and then America can deal with the rest of the world. And the argument that I always made was if two if the two most important partners of the United States, certainly economically, but one can argue certainly in the continent, huge security concerns, if the Mexicans and the Canadians came together and went to the White House and said, you know, no, we're not interested in seeding our sovereignty. But look at, you know, look, let's go through the list of things that we can do together. And the list is long. Um, that together we could probably, I, I used to think, probably move the White House. It's always never thinking about the region anyway. It's thinking about some great foreign policy issue to get them to really concentrate on it. And I, and I believe that even in this time of crisis, I believe that to be the case. That's why I said earlier today 
Um, we're working with uh, our Mexican counterparts. I co-chair a, a Canada-Mexico uh, a leadership group, and we're meeting all the time. And one of the things that we're saying to one another is that while we can't jointly walk into the Oval Office to make these arguments, uh, we can pursue these arguments on, on in, in a scheme that I call conscious parallelism in order to get them to understand just how important this prize is. Because at the end of the day, Raphael, uh, again, I'm not for putting China into the crosshairs, but at the end of the day, if the two countries can work together on joint strategies, there are all sorts of things that we can do. I think you've heard a full day of possibilities. Um, I hope that we would have an influence, if not on the, on, the, on the big man himself, on some of the very, very smart people. And even though they're billionaires, I believe that all of them, or certainly the ones that I know about, uh, want to serve the United States of America, even if they are following in the footsteps of their leader day after day, contradicting what he said the day before. I mean, these are people who I think want to really do something for the United States. We're going to have to wrap it up here. Um, I want to, but we have the um, reception outside, so you can, uh, you can uh, thank, thank you very, very much to UCSD, the Institute, to Raphael. Uh, to Gordon for organizing this, for Melissa for amazing logistics. And um, I think uh, our next challenge is to take this out of the bubble. And, you know, I'm going to do what I can to take it out of the bubble to talk about all the facets of this relationship because um, it needs to get better. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.